John, tell us what happened October 17th of 2019 in Culiacán, Sinaloa, Mexico. It all started when the Mexican army went in to capture uh, Ovidio Guzman, one of the sons of El Chapo, Joaquin Guzman Loera, who was the head or one of the heads of the Sinaloa cartel. The Sinaloa cartel is one of the most powerful criminal organizations in the country. You may remember the story of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, former head of the infamous Mexican Sinaloa cartel. The hunt for his whereabouts made headlines around the world. It was a family business. Now his son is in charge of that cartel. A torrent of gunfire sending dozens of people running for their lives. Mexico's security secretary said federal troops came under heavy fire by cartel members. Witnesses say masked men with high-powered weapons unleashed a barrage of bullets at soldiers with innocent people caught in the crossfire. The, the Sinaloa cartel basically turned out in force across the city, got involved in several firefights with Mexican security forces, managed to capture some Mexican soldiers, and they just had this huge amount of firepower at their disposal. And with that amount of firepower, they managed to subjugate, really, the Mexican authorities. On Friday, Mexico's security cabinet took responsibility for what they called a failed operation. And in the end, the Mexican uh, government had to actually let Ovidio Guzman go. They had to release him because they, they felt that there was going to be a bloodbath if they didn't. 2019 was Mexico's most violent year on record. Mexico's public security secretary says that on average, there were about 94 homicides reported in Mexico every day. That's four people murdered every hour or one every 15 minutes. Last year, nearly 35,000 people were murdered in the country. And since 2006, when Mexico started their version of the war on drugs, Almost 275,000 people have been killed. Many say that you can't have violence in Mexico without guns. But where those guns are coming from is one of the issues. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Al Jazeera's John Holman wanted to know exactly how the Sinaloa cartel acquired all those guns to fight against the military. So he sat down for exclusive interviews with members of the criminal organization. We'll hear from them in this episode. Note that the content of this episode deals with some pretty violent stuff. So just a heads up if there are younger listeners around. But for now, let's go back to the events from last October. We saw so many tweets at the time. I remember seeing them online of residents in the area shocked. This is just, you know kind of shocking footage to think that Mexican soldiers were outgunned and pretty much overwhelmed by the cartel. How does that happen? Well, obviously, one of the clues towards how that happened was that the Sinaloa cartel had to be quite well supplied uh, with with heavy weaponry, no, for that to have worked for them. And a lot of those guns and a lot of those weapons uh, that they did get get hold of, we were subsequently told by people from within the cartel come from the United States and smuggled across the border. You heard that right. The guns that give the cartel major firepower are believed to have come from the United States illegally. 
While much is being done to prevent people, goods, illicit drugs from coming in, it appears that the smuggling out could also be a problem at the U.S. border. Now, Mexico itself has very strict gun laws. It's really hard to get hold of weapons legally in the country. And in fact, there's only one shop controlled by the army where you can actually buy weapons in the country. But um, what American authorities actually, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, found out that the guns that were recovered by law enforcement after scenes of crimes, basically, and were submitted for tracing, 70% of those were originally purchased in the United States. And that data was part of a criminal investigation in Mexico from 2011 to 2016. John tells us how he found these cartel members who were willing to speak to him. What we did is go to the border town of Mexicali, and that's where we were able to meet up with a gun runner and also someone who was actually there that day in Culiacan on October the 17th. We asked them both about what happened. As you mentioned, you talked to someone who was actually there on that day in October, a hitman working with the Sinaloa cartel who fought against the police and the military. And I just want to clarify to our listeners that the voices that they'll hear in Spanish during these interviews, they've been modified to keep these men anonymous. John, going into that interview, how did you prepare? So going into that interview, I didn't know that he'd actually been there that day. That was something that came out in the interview, almost immediately, we started talking about what had happened in Culiacan, basically just to warm him up. And then he said, Yes, of course, all the guns that we manage here are coming from the other side, United States. And we were all armed that day with those guns. And I actually asked him at one point in the interview, I remember, so if you hadn't have been able to get hold of those weapons from the United States, that confrontation with the Mexican authorities wouldn't have taken place then. And he said, well, yeah, it would have still taken place, but... Maybe we wouldn't have been able to outgun them if it wasn't so easy to get guns. You're sitting in this room, and it's quite a striking image to see the video that's up on Al Jazeera of this across from a hitman from the Sinaloa cartel. Describe him for us. He's masked. Of course, his identity is hidden, but describe that scene for us. That was actually in a, in a, in a hotel room that we had to rent for the night just to, just to do that interview. And we sort of uh, had to get him in for a side entrance because obviously he didn't want people to know about his identity. Once he was in the room, I think it's, it always strikes me when I interview people from organized crime and from cartels or gangs, you always end up having like these very civilized sort of conversations with them. And you're talking about things that are unimaginable to most people. I want to ask you something um, that's probably slightly more difficult for you, but how many people have you killed um, with with your weapon? I think I've lost count, but yes, yes, it's been a lot of people, but not innocent people, really. I don't remember having killed any innocent people. There were people who were involved in other things or owe something or did something they weren't supposed to do. 
they always come across as people that you wouldn't look twice out on the street, often quite softly spoken. He sort of seemed a personable young man, able to speak quite um, eloquently, I suppose, and civilly about what he'd done. It's, it's just a surreal sort of situation, those conversations. He's also holding a handgun. What was that like for you? I'm not used to seeing that many guns, so I always get a small shock whenever someone um, pulls one out, and he's just had it tucked into his um, trousers, actually. The unidentified hitman John is sitting across from describes the guns used, how they work, which ones are favored, and he does it all with a precision that implies he's no novice. Normally, the most effective guns are handguns like Glock 40, 45, 38. When it comes to rifles, the AK-47 and the AR-15 are the most used. Now, during a good clash, a 50 caliber. We always carry guns in the cars for whatever reason we might need them. Is it, is it difficult for you to get hold of these weapons or is it easy? How easy is it? Not at all. Basically, there are always vendors and there are always consumers. And it's something super easy to get within our circle. They offered it to us and we see everything that is made new and in its packaging. And obviously, all of it comes from the United States. But how they are buying those guns and how they're getting them past the U.S.-Mexico border... John finds out when he speaks to another member of the Sinaloa cartel, a trafficker in Mexicali. It's quite like, a, it's quite a big organization. He said that as far as he knew, the, the guns were being bought by straw buyers in the US, people that could legally buy the guns, and then they were obviously passed on to, the, to this chain so that they could get themselves. So uh, you said there's usually a straw man or a straw person in the U.S. who's actually buying the U.S. So what are they using, fake IDs, or how is that happening? Our investigation was really focused on the Mexican side of the border. How were those guns getting into Mexico uh, so easily, especially when the country has this huge problem and a record uh, murder rate at the moment? Why isn't more being done to stop that? What we didn't focus on so much was how they were being brought in the US. That was a whole different story. Because our axis was with the cartel on the Mexican side, we more focused on Mexico's problem and how things were going with them. So the other person that you spoke to was a gun trafficker. It was quite difficult to set that up. The The safe house was sort of in a, I'd say in a middle to lower class suburb of Mexicali, but it wasn't obviously the only one that's on that border. The trafficker that we talked to said that this is all across the border. And obviously he worked for the Sinaloa cartel, but there's not just that organization. Different organizations as well will have their safe houses. The role of the safe house is that when we arrive with the guns, they can stay a day or two here. And then they come and pick them up when everything is ready to move them somewhere else. So from the outside, you would never guess that it was being used to store weapons that were being smuggled across from the other side of the border. And he mentioned how he started working with the cartel. I was about to turn 18 when I began working with the Sinaloa cartel. I am now 24 years old. So I've been working with them for six years. 
What's his main job? So his main job is to pick up the weapons on the U.S. side. They've already been bought by this point. Someone is waiting for me with the guns. The only thing I do is get them across the border. Once I bring them here, other people are in charge of it, from selling them here or sending them to Sinaloa. He said that he mainly did handguns, that he didn't do the bigger, the bigger weapons. He said that if you wanted to get those high-powered weapons across, you might need to think about bribing uh, customs agents, but that because he was carrying across smaller handguns, he just uh, went for it, and he usually managed to get through fine to the other side, to Mexicali, to sort of store them in the safe house there. I, I'm not trying to give tips to anyone, but I am so curious. Passing over the border seems like it would cause concern for someone smuggling guns. Where are they putting these guns? So the gun trafficker that we spoke to said that he didn't really make a big effort to hide them. It's really easy. I mean, we do hide them, but it's as easy as hiding them under a surface, in the upholstery or wherever there's a way. He made a point of saying, you know, it's it's not, it's it's. I don't really go out of my way too much to make sure they're hidden in any elaborate way. He said he basically relied on the fact that he was bringing across. He said his his line was pistols rather than bigger sort of weaponry, and in that way, he was rarely ever he was rarely ever stopped. Honestly, they're not searching your car at all. They're really focused on other things. They're focused on searching for goods that you could be bringing over and making sure you don't exceed in the amount of dollars that you can buy. So he said that he came across maybe three times a week? In a week, I can bring over about 50 weapons. Not in a single trip, though. We bring over handguns like the 9mm, .38, Supers, 45s. Those are the most common. And the most common rifles are AR-15s, AK-47s, and M-16s. Have you ever had problems with the, the Mexican authorities or the Mexican police uh, for what you do? Yes, I have had problems. They caught me about two times. So what, what, what happened then? Well, like they say around here, money talks. We handle things with money. And after all, it's every man to himself. I don't know you and you don't know me. At the end of all of this, there's obviously families that are missing, that are missing a loved one, uh, that are missing a relative, because uh, partly because of all these guns entering the, the country. Um, do you feel any personal responsibility or is that something that goes through your mind at times? Sometimes I think about all that. All of those people who get caught in the crossfires and those who die. And it does make you say, well, shit. But what can you do? Once you're in, it's really difficult to get out. It's really difficult to get out of this. During his reporting, John found out that the guns are also being trafficked to Mexico in parts. Someone from the state attorney's office in Tijuana told us that actually 
the cartels now are buying parts of guns in the United States rather than the entire weapon. They're then take, smuggling those, those parts of guns across the border into Mexico, putting the gun together in Mexico. And what this person from the attorney, the state attorney's office in Tijuana uh, told us was that that was ingenious in a way, I suppose, because it made the guns extremely hard to trace in the United States and really easy to buy in bulk because you're just buying lots of different parts. And it made them hard to trace as well at crime scenes in Mexico. They said that the guns that they picked up, it was just impossible to know where they're from. So it's sort of like Frankenstein guns. We started our chat today talking about the events in October of 2019. And the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel López Obrador, has been heavily criticized for that response and for what took place, which ended, as you mentioned, with the release of El Chapo's son or one of his sons. And he said he did it for the citizens of Culiacán and for their sake. Yo... I backed the decision because I consider protecting the people the most important thing. The most important thing is to protect against the loss of life. The most important thing is peace. What is the Mexican government doing to prevent gun trafficking and the escalation of violence in the country overall? Yeah, it was interesting because just after that all happened, they started talking again, you know, the, especially Mexico's foreign ministry about, well, you know, this is a lot of this is due to the fact that guns are coming across from the United States. In fact, he said that that's the biggest problem here, guns coming across from the United States. So you think that obviously the solution to that would be, okay, you beef up your border so that these guns stop coming in. And he did say that they were working, that Mexico was working on a plan with the United States on adding border security so that this so that this wouldn't keep happening. After that, obviously, we asked the Mexican Foreign Ministry and we asked the Customs Agency for an interview specifically to talk about the details of that plan and what exactly was happening. And we didn't hear anything uh, back from them. Since then, things seem to have gone uh, a bit quiet on that front. Not just this administration, but past administrations have also talked about it, the fact that the guns are coming from the United States. I think they blamed that for the violence in the country. Obviously, people have to be pulling the trigger of those. They don't just kill people on their own. So I think just assigning all of the responsibility to the United States and guns coming across the border from them would be misleading. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilvey, Amy Walters, Dina Kispe, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Bashir is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to John Holman, Ricardo Lopez, Vanessa Gomez, Miguel Vega, Mercedes Vargas, and Pilar Tejerina. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, go to this episode's description. You'll find extra information about the topic, but also our social media handles. And for more, just go to aljazeera.com slash the take.